Hi, I'm Janet Deneef, founder and director of the Ubud Writers and Readers Festival. You are about to hear one of the highlight sessions of the 2021 event, which featured more than 150 storytellers and was explored through our theme, Mulat Sarira, self-reflection. So please settle in and let the magic of our 18th year continue. present i think there's really no conversation that we could be having about language and politics that doesn't first acknowledge that we're meeting on stolen land um it gives me great pleasure to introduce our speakers today emily and felix who will be treating us to a few readings of their poems to start the session so i'd first like to introduce felix k nessie Felix Nessie was born in West Timor in 1988. He obtained a bachelor's degree in psychology from Madeka University of Malang in 2017. Felix Nessie has written poems, short stories, a novel, and essays for several newspapers in Indonesia. His short story collection, Attempts to Kill Loneliness, was published in 2016. In 2017, he founded Communitas Leco, a community that is part literary festival, bookshop, publisher, and library in Kupang, West Timor. His novel, People of Otamu, won the Jakarta Arts Council's biannual competition in 2018. Hi, hi, Felix. Can you hear us? Hello. How are you? Oh, I'm good. Thank you. Thank you, Hannah. It's good to see you. Um, would you would you maybe like to read something for us to begin this session? <laughs> uh, yeah, sure. Oh, maybe maybe we'll start with Emily first. Yeah. Um, we'll, we'll get we'll get Emily to read first, um, and then maybe we'll come back to Felix. Um, so, um, Emily's son was born in Hong Kong moved to England at age three, and at eight years old, immigrated with her family to Wajak Noongar Buja, Perth, Western Australia. Emily's poetry and prose have been published in various journals and anthologies, including Mianjin, Growing Up Asian in Australia, Cordite Poetry Review, and Australian Poetry Journal. She's a founding member of Invincible, a writing collective working out of Gula Gadup Heathcote, She's currently a PhD candidate at UWA, where she's working on a historical fiction project. Vociferate, Young, is her debut poetry collection. And how are you, Emily? Yeah, I'm good. Yeah. <laughs> so are we going to wait for Felix or would you like me to um, read Maybe something? we'll get you. Okay. Um, so, yeah, we'll get you to read something yeah, well, first. Technical issues and then, um, Felix, did you want to prepare something to read as well? Yeah, perfect. Okay. Um, so I can see everyone in the crowd, and some of you have heard this before. Um, some of you have heard it a couple of times. But I hope um, with each reading um, you get something different out of it. This is called National Treasures Coming Home, and it was I got the title from a GQ article, which was about um, kind of uh, the Chinese government kind of bringing back uh, treasures that were, you know, were in museums from overseas or art galleries, like both 
public and private collections. And um, this doesn't really have anything to do with that um, kind of activity, but it inspired me to write this poem. Okay, National Treasures Coming Home. My boss, the head nurse, says she has a collection of Ming Dynasty crockery, Qing Dynasty snuff bottles, and a Shang Dai bronze tripod vase, always filled with fresh pomegranates, looted by her ancestors or bought for all the tea in China. I'm the poor cousin, the others got more. Come for dinner and you'll see them more. I disliked her then, I dislike her now, but it's Queen Victoria, I should gen tao yen, throw rotten eggs or spray four bandits on the pedestal where she sits in the park at the end of Great George Street. Luti was a Pekingese, say it in Cantonese, fucking gull. <laughs> it is my boss, not Victoria, who wants me to eat beef stroganoff and polenta off my ancestor's plate, sniff the potpourri she's placed in rhinoceros shell-lined bottles, translate the inked poems about ancient fish and explain why the toad has red eyes, flared nose and only three legs. For dessert, she will make a pavlova in her new Bosch oven with fresh cherries seconds from local farms. I usually pay to admire stolen goods in case in glass cabinets, national treasures and ancient clays I cannot afford to buy. I've seen the Egyptian treasures excavated by the men who live in Downton Abbey. Your Chinese mouth would not touch these Chinese treasures had we not salvaged history back to Portsmouth. Look at what happened to the temples of Baoshamin and the giant Buddhas of Bamiyan. We have an understanding, she and I. I order pens, paper, ink cartridges and pantry supplies, soaps, malted milk and chocolate biscuits for the children who attend our geriatric clinic. I add two boxes of tampons and she tells me they're for the patients, of course. I nod when she says people should pay for their healthcare because she gives me hour-long lunch breaks and calls me good girl. So I say I will come to dinner. I will see if Russian gravy tastes better on centuries-old porcelain plates patterned by cobalt and manganese and ingests the same trace elements as the imperial court nobles who ate Thai of their crockery fresh out of the kiln. But my cousin says that our people were peasants who woke early to pick grains or rice, or maybe it was wheat with our hands. We were foreign to the forbidden city. I asked him what I should wear to a meal with the descendants of drug dealers who poisoned a nation with opioids, rendered it sick to yellow and disease to walk in leafy green meadows when they could not cure their addiction to yamcha. He says, I will lend you my vest, cut from the uniform of a Sung Dynasty eunuch, it does not fit me, but it will indeed fit you. Perhaps, perhaps, perhaps. Thank you, Emily. I always love listening to you read. Um, Felix, um, was there a poem or two that you'd like to read for us today? Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, uh, I will just uh, read my poems in uh, Bahasa Indonesia, yeah? Uh, di rumah seorang asing 
yang tak henti membicarakan rambut dan warna kulit. Siapakah yang diam-diam menaruh gemunung di dalam hatimu? Siapakah yang membentangkan curiga dari ujung dagu hingga jendela kamarmu? Di negeri kami, orang bercerita tentang tanah yang hilang, tentang bangsa yang tak punya siapa-siapa selain ibu kota. Bawalah bebanku, mau berkata, aku punya tulang yang ganjil, tetapi lihai memberi cerita. Di perhentian berikut, kita berpandang-pandangan. Tak ada persimpangan, tapi kita tak ingin Uh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Felix. And it's it's really wonderful to hear you read your work. Think thinking about the relationship between politics and poetry can be a really daunting task. Um, It's such a broad and contentious topic and I think there's room for so many divergences. So I'm not sure what we can actually cover in 45 minutes, but nonetheless, we shall try. Um, so I've prepared a few questions that I'd like to ask Emily and Felix first, and then we'll provide an opportunity for um, members of the audience, both online and attending here in person, to ask a question if they would like as well. So I'll start with the session of this, like the title of the session, Poetry and Politics. And Felix and Emily, you've both written in other forms before. So Felix, you've written a novel and short stories. And I know, Emily, you've also written in prose as well. So maybe we'll start with you, Emily. Is there something special or significant about poetry that allows you to explore the ideas important to you? Um, I'd have to say I could explore these ideas in other forms as well, but this poetry collection came about because, um, I mean, I don't mean to kind of be flippant about writing poetry, but I wrote them because I was trying to kind of free myself from writing academic prose because I wrote this collection in the break I had between my master's and my PhD And I realised that my writing had become um, too academic and my prose had become too restricted and even the way I was thinking because I was also teaching academic writing had become too institutionalised. So I guess for me, poetry offers me that freedom um, to break away from those conventions. And I was thinking about this session on my way here about politics and poetry and, like you said, there's so much that, we could talk about, like I was thinking, oh, do I talk about, you know, the my smart writer? Because everything we do, like the politics is personal and the personal is politics, including, you know, my smart writer on the way up here and the change in, like, zones. So, yeah, ask away. What else do you want to ask? <laughs> yeah, do you think um, there are things you can say in poetry about politics that you can't say in other forms, like, Uh, not really. I think yes and no. So these questions are really hard. For example, I guess National Treasures is a perfect 
example um, and a way to answer this question. It started off as an 8,000-word short story, um, which was in a different form altogether. It was about, um, I think I wrote it when I was a bit younger, about how much I hated a boss that I had and my work. And it was kind of, wasn't even what you would call literary. It was about a machine of pain and, um, yeah, it's actually quite t- twisted where well, I was just expressing my, expressing my frustration with work at the time. And then I guess through the years as I revisited it, I kind of distilled it and kind of started viewing that experience not through, you know, as a way of kind of working out my relationship with, um, you know, work and all the things that comes with being a human in the world and having to survive. Um, Yeah, so from that, somehow I distilled it and it became this national treasures coming home. And then I guess in poetry I can make those leaps that I might not necessarily be able to do in conventional prose where the narrative is more linear and I'm unable to, you know, I, it took me 8,000 words to express everything that I wanted to and that I managed to, I guess, compress in two pages of poetry. And does that answer the question? In some way? Yeah, it does. I think the way that those complex issues get condensed into a maybe more compressed form is really um, might allow you to say something, you know, maybe more concise or maybe a different way. Yeah, and more experimental. Yeah. I mean, I thought as a younger person who wrote that story um, that that was experimental, but I think, yeah, my poetry is far more experimental than the prose I wrote when I was younger. Wonderful. Um, I might ask the same question to Felix. So um, what's drawn you to writing poetry, Felix, um, and is that different from the novel or the stories that you've written? Uh, yeah. Uh, first of all, I published my my book several months ago, but but I have to I have to apologize because I don't have the books now with me. Uh, I live in a, a village. Uh, it's so far away from the bookstore. The nearest bookstore is like about uh, five hundred kilometer. Um, and because I grew up in 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 this village in Timor in West Timor, um. I live with uh, 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 my my family. I, I mean, Timorese people. We have we, we have this uh, oral tradition. We don't we don't write, but but we have so many stories. We have poems. We have uh, like like in our song, we 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 have also um when we pray uh, like like the spell or something like that. And I think all of it is uh, is poems. Like we have rhymes and. and Everything. Um, so when I start to write, I'm writing about I'm I'm writing prose and also poems and and but I just uh, published published uh, my poems collection this year because uh, I think after I I published my uh, short stories collection and novel. Yeah, maybe maybe something something with, with all my poems. So I collect uh, all the poems that I wrote, like 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 uh, when I was uh, in in high school, like like ten years ago, and then I I, I published it because um, yeah yeah 
I think I live with I live with so much poems in my head. Uh, the, the 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 elders they always they always uh, tell us something like in rhymes and and we sing everywhere like 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 every we we work in in the farm we sing and we we go to to take uh, we we take the cows to the savanna we sing and and we have we have poems. Uh, Almost for everything, I think that's the that's the reason. Yeah. Wow. Thanks, Felix. Um, did you say you had poems that you'd written in high school as well? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They make it to your collection. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I was at, I I I collect about uh like about six hundred or five hundred poems, but. Uh, I work with my editor, and we just pick like uh, uh, seven, uh, seventy, seven poems or something like. That. I think seventy nine or eighty poems. Yeah, seventy nine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so in that collection, Kita, Penang, Saling, and Chinta, what what's the oldest poem in there that you've written? Uh, that's, uh, from uh, two thousand two thousand eight, I think. Yeah, ten years ago, twelve years. Yeah. <laughs> Emily, what's the what's the um oldest poem in Vociferate? Probably one from twenty eighteen because I, I mean, I've always written in fragments and poetry for myself, but it wasn't until twenty nineteen that I thought about publishing them as a collection. Yeah, fantastic. Um, so I might turn to a question about place. Um, Emily, your work is really interested in place and in the movement of people and in diaspora. So some of the um, poems reflect on Hong Kong and China and the histories of empire that they're entangled in. And they also look at your experiences in living in a so-called Australia. So do you consider place to be an important aspect of your poetry and how have the different places you've lived in informed your work? I think I've always lived a rather, even though I've been stuck in um, my house for the last 15 years or so, I've always thought of myself as being untethered to a specific place and I suppose that comes from being the daughter of someone, of parents who are here today, who are so better watch what I say, um, <laughs> who are themselves diasporic Chinese. So even though you, know, you have to go back to well, the late 19th century where I can locate all my ancestors in, you know, the motherland that is what is now the PRC. But I suppose because of how in Australia, the Chinese haven't been accepted here as Australians and that history of discrimination, which, you know, up until when we came here, the white Australian policy had only, like, that was just within 10 years of the end of the white Australian policy. So there's always that feeling of, yeah, not quite belonging here. And even though... Yeah, and this might be different for the next generations, so that might be something you can answer. Um, but, yeah, there's that feeling of 
being nowhere because yet you're still tethered somehow to where your ancestors came from, not only because of how um, what the policies here or the attitudes here, but also because of the policies or laws about citizenship and like over there. And then being born in Hong Kong is even more confusing. And I'm sure if I had stayed in Hong Kong, like a friend told me, I would have been even messed up about my identity and sense of place. Um, and then I was thinking when I was listening to the earlier session, I mean, if I'd been born in Jakarta, that's a different experience of being Chinese as well, because there's that um, discrimination against Chinese there and, you know, where you can't even use your name and uh, maybe you can now, but I know there was that period. I haven't kept up to touch with what happens in Indonesia, but I met many people who, you know, have Indonesian names, but they turn out to be Chinese because they're not allowed to keep their names. Um, so a little bit like what's, you know, with the far right in France at the moment, kind of promoting that idea that, you know, French children must have French names. So, you know, kind of aligning the nation state, kind of imposing these identities on you. And I suppose in writing this collection, I was thinking about all those things and even language and so I kind of stuck my name. Um, so even my name is political because this is my name on the cover, the Chinese part. And, I mean, I could just write a whole PhD about that. There might be a chapter <laughs> about that, but even my name, like for many of you, you know, who come here with different names, you just adopt an alias so it's easier for everyone else. But then at the same time, the name I have, it's transliterated. It's actually a Mandarin name, but it's, yeah, so that identifies me as being from probably China, but yet, you know, I didn't speak Mandarin or enter like what is now China until my 20s. So it's really complex. And I suppose going back to the first question, that's why I wrote this poetry because, yeah, like you said, it is easier to explain through poetry than, you know, to kind of present a three-hour long lecture. We could do that as well. No. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, and I was also really interested in some of the poems you wrote that sort of responded to specific places like, you know, like a restaurant on William Street or a specific um, suburb or something like that. So, oh, yeah. That, that only was... came about because um, I took a, a writing workshop with Laurie Steed, a local writer, um, and that, at that point I thought I was putting together a short story collection and he spoke about how, um, yeah, that, we should, or I should specifically, write about Perth because this has been my hometown and I know this place better than all the other places I've been, but yet there's still that reluctance. I sense that even through my work now to claim that this is my home and I guess it's like about identity, it's twofold, like whether I'm accepted and whether, you know, I want to accept that identity imposed and self-claimed identities and it's provisional, like it just shifts depending on context. Now it's like I'm writing my thesis for you. Oh, that's not what I'm trying to. <laughs> but we're not. Um, it's okay, you don't have to write your thesis now. We're just having a chat. <laughs> um, 
So Felix, this question of place plays a really important role in your work as well. And one of the really interesting things that your work is doing is that is examining those untold stories about the East Nusa Tenggara province and it critiques that centralization of power and capital in Java. So Felix, I'm wondering if you'd like to talk a little bit about place and your home province and why that's important to your writing. Yeah, Hannah. Uh, I, I grew up in, in Timor, but then I go to study in Jaffa. And, and the, the first time I go there, it's like, uh, uh, like the soft culture hit me so hard. Uh, uh, I, I, I then realized that, that sometimes uh, uh, the big event in, in Timor is just because the effect of just a little event in, in Java, in Java, like uh, I always, I always say, or, or I even wrote it in my novel, uh, sentences that uh, Jakartans go to the toilet, uh, but we, we are in Timor, we are the one who, who, who uh, receive the stink, right? Like, yeah, we are the one who, who have to clean it, clean it up because it's so stinks. Um, despite of that, uh, it's also about the, the discrimination and, and something like that in, 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 in Java. Uh, not all, but, but I experienced so many, so, so many experiences. Um, the poem that I, that, that I, I read, that I, I was just read is uh, about that, uh, the, raw, the, the raw translation is uh, in the house of a stranger who did not stop talking about my hair and my skin color. It's, it's something uh, very stressful in the first time when I, I go to job. Uh, yeah, yeah, so much even like, uh, so much even is just, so much, so much big even in Timor is just the, the, the effect of something a little even in, in Java. Uh, also because it's maybe it's it's uh, too far yeah from from Jakarta and if something happen happen like like um I don't know in, in 80, 90, 1898 there's a chaos in Jakarta and and uh so much Chinese people uh get uh like like yeah yeah uh they have this this uh this chaos, uh, uh, they, they got attacked in Jakarta. And we have the, the big effect in, in Timor also. Like every Chinese people is running away, running away. Uh, uh, although uh, no one in Timor like attack, attack them or, or uh, go to the street and do something chaos in the street. So much big even like that. Yeah. One of the things that we were talking about in conversation is how 
strange it is to be here as a collection of Chinese and Indonesian writers and kind of reflect on those historical moments that we've had. And, yeah, I think it's really interesting to be sitting here today and sort of talking about that. Um, I'm going to circle back to a point that you made earlier, Emily, about your smart writer. <laughs> um, and I wanted to ask about the relationship between the personal or, you know, your daily life and the political because in Vociferate your poems are sort of weaving together these love stories, there's celebrity crushes and there's sort of intimate memories of your own with your um, health as well. So what kind of relationship do you think there is between, you know, the political and I the I think personal? they can be delineated and I suppose when you've like been spent your life here as a racialized other, um, it's just made really evident that politics is personal. And at another event that I went to um, and spoke at, someone asked me, like, when I, were, when I was going to write about something at a higher order than about race, and perhaps if I was a Singaporean writer where I could take my Chineseness for granted because I, that's, you know, a place where people speak English and, you know, can write in English, um, I wouldn't, you know, have this imposed identity and, and perhaps if I wrote from outside of Australia and not about, you know, or if I wrote genre fiction, I could, like, bracket myself out of it. But in writing such a personal collection, it's really impossible not to include politics in the poetry because even the previous question that you asked me, well, why, like, my how my poems have this sense of, you know, place and movement. And it's hard for it not to be when, you know, for example, my mother, whose family is Vietnamese Chinese, they had to move because there was war there. Um, my dad, who, you know, his parents, you know, there was war there and, you know, people were in search of better lives. And then I suppose for me, I'm travelled a lot by choice, um, even though, I didn't have much money. Um, I just travelled and backpacked because I grew up in the 80s and 90s where it was really racist and I felt there was no place for me here in Perth and that was the rise of Pauline Hanson 1.0. And I don't want to keep referring to her and thanking her as I have done comedically to say thank you for, you know, helping me, you know, realise that I'm Chinese and that I need to learn the language. But that sort of... Racism, it exists and it does shape you. And I suppose all those stickers and that said, you know, fuck off, we're full or go back to where you come from, I suppose I took that on board. And so all that travel was me going from here to there, trying to see whether I could find a sense of place. And the places I did feel most comfortable were, interestingly, are places um, that are more cosmopolitans or where my friendship groups are a mixture of people. Because when I did go back to China, I realised, as most people do um, who are in my position, that I'm actually, you know, I didn't really belong there either. But that's also because I went to Beijing and that's like, because I thought, oh, I self-essentialised and I went, okay, I'm just going to be Chinese and I'm just going to go to China, forget I ever learned 
ever spoke English and, you know, ditched the violin for the erhu and, you know, and just become, uh, you know, a fundamentalist Chinese. So luckily um, for Australia, what I thought that meant was like having that sense of um, Mandarin, being able to speak Mandarin and being able to interact. Um, but then when I got there, you know, I was really foreign in that place. And maybe if I'd gone to Hong Kong, maybe I would have had more of a sense of place. But then because I'm illiterate in, you know, like traditional Chinese, I would have also been you know, kind of neither here nor there. And I know a lot of people speak about, you know, creating this third space and Homi Baba speaks about that. But I think the space isn't even just a third space. It's like this layered multiverse of spaces. And, and I think we've spoken about this, like when we've had conversation, how, you know, when, yeah, I mean, where is that space and where do you write from? And in my everyday life, I don't really have to think about this because I don't go out that much. But now having, you know, immersed myself into writing, you know, these are the things I've been thinking about. Yeah, I, I think this idea that you're speaking about this kind of liminality, I don't know, like I think it's very abstract or fashionable to talk about the ways that we might exist in between identities, but that's all fun and well until you actually have to live it and then you have to write about it and then that has to come from a place as well that's more than just yeah. a nice word. Yeah, and then all the tools we work with, like even the terms that we call ourselves like people of colour and I mean, that people of colour, that comes from like apartheid, you know, like apartheid South Africa, where you're neither black or white. So it's like as a writer writing in English or mainly an English reading audience, there's all these questions of positionality that, you know, you, you just can't take for granted. So that's what I'm grappling with at the moment for my current project. Yeah, Wonderful. So speaking of positionality, Felix, what kind of, relationship is there between the personal and the political in your work? I know some of your poems look at relationships between family members. They're really interested in generations and lovers. So is there something that you'd like to speak to on that topic? Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, every single event, uh, uh, important event that happened in, in Timor, uh, then I told you that it, it was just an effect from, from Jakarta. Uh, every single event of that is, uh, give me so many uh, traumatic memor mem memories in, in, in me, so also I think in my family. Because uh, like, like for example, uh, uh, the biggest event is, is when the, the Timor is the more uh, war, like like they, they have to gain their independence. Uh, it's so so chaos in West Timor because suddenly we have so many army. Suddenly we have so uh, so so many attack, uh, and 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 the, the army, the soldiers, they live live in the fields. They live in the fields. So so every day we have to see the army with guns. And and sometimes we ha we we have to hear the the gunshot in the neighborhood, and um, after that we have to we have to receive so many uh, refugees from Estimor, 
uh, also some of them is our family so like like uh, we have to we, we have the big, big, bigger family uh, with with their traumatic uh, even with their tra traumatic memory so so we have so, so many uh, yeah I have to say that we have, we have chaos we, we also have uh, so many chaos like our family is become unstable and, and everything and uh, the army that the soldiers that came to the village they are not not just soldiers uh, soldiers the people that we we are afraid of but also they are Japanese like like they have a double a double supreme uh, for us humans so um, all of this all of all of these uh, all of these things uh, I live with all of these things until I go to until I, I go to the Java and then and then I I decide to be a writer and and everything and I think every time I I write I write I maybe I'm wrong but but I always give uh, all the excuses to, to the to the government uh, I think uh, what happened to me, like all the trauma, traumatic memory, is is the is their responsibility. Their responsibility. Uh, yeah, everything is just uh, uh, just like that in, in my head. <laughs> uh, maybe I'm wrong about that, but uh, I have to think about it <laughs> over and over. Yeah. Thank you, Felix. Um, I think the takeaway from that is sort of the ways in which the personal is the political and the way that government is so inextricably woven into that. And I know we don't have that much time left, but let me just check. Is anyone, um, would anyone like to ask a question directed at, well, I see there's one online, maybe we'll take that first. Thank you, Sarah. The question is for both speakers, how can poems create social and political change and what have been the responses to your political poems? Shall we let Felix answer that first? Do you hear that question? Uh, sorry? The question was how, sorry, Sharon, why do you repeat that? How can poems create social and political change and what have been the responses to your political poems? Felix, what have been the um, responses to your political poems? Maybe we'll get Emily to answer that first, yeah. I don't know because my poems, because the poetry collection's only been out um, <laughs> since June. Mm -hmm. Wow, that was really easy to answer. Was that the question? What the responses <laughs> mean? And how do I think it can change people's views? Well, it can't if no one reads them. <laughs> so um, 
I suppose that's a question for people who've read the poems to answer. So if anyone out there's read them <laughs> and wants to respond, that's for the audience to answer, I think. Felix, are you there? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. Uh, yeah. 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 <laughs> I don't have so much hope for my poems. Like, like, uh, I already, uh, I, I, I always come to, to attend the demonstration. I always, I even broke uh, the glasses of uh, uh, the, the glass of the window uh, of the church in my village because I'm too angry. And now I don't have any hope for my poems. It's like, uh, I just want to write it, but but uh, uh, I don't have hope if it's uh, if it will get responses or even uh, change people or something like that. I think did they read it? Like yeah, that's the, maybe they will even read it. Thank you, Felix. And I think we have one more question. That on? Yeah, thank you. My name is Tinika. Question for Felix. Felix, is your poetry likely to um, expose you and maybe uh, land you in jail? I'm sorry, can you repeat it slowly? <laughs> um, Felix, how dangerous is uh, your poetry for your freedom? And is it likely that you might be uh, land in jail because of what you write? Ah. Uh, when I write, I didn't really care about that. Like, like I always, maybe I'm wrong, but I always think that the, the government they didn't read. So, so... It's 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 uh, uh, it's win for me. Like 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 they are lazy to read. They don't even read the 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 statuta. They don't even read the the uh, number of pages of of, of the government uh, work, like like sit work or something like that. Uh, how come they have time to read poems? They are so they are too lazy to read. Too busy oppressing people to read poetry, I think. I'm sorry if you came to the session expecting maybe do you hear that poetry would change the world? Um, maybe it will and maybe it won't, but I hope you keep reading and writing anyway. Um, thank you very much for um, speaking today, Emily. Thank you, Felix, as well, for your time and for sharing your words. Um, thank you, everyone, for attending the session. It really means a lot to us.